You're listening to a sermon audio from Cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. The luxury liner of the Queen Mary, which uh, currently lies in repose in Long Beach Harbor, has since 1967, is a fascinating illustration of this very contrast. Commissioned for her maiden voyage in 1936, the Queen Mary set a new benchmark for luxury in an era already known for elegance and style. She was the grandest ocean liner in the world at the time, and she carried all of the A-list Hollywood celebrities. Royalty like the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Think Downton Abbey. Dignitaries like Sir Winston Churchill. But three years after her maiden voyage, World War II broke out, and things changed dramatically. The Queen Mary was stripped of all her luxurious amenities and painted camouflage gray to help hide her from the Luftwaffe and German U-boats. The opulent staterooms were turned into bunks, eight tiers high, And instead of carrying 3,000 cruise ship passengers, the Queen Mary ferried 15,000 soldiers across the Atlantic at at a time to the war in Europe. If you've taken the tour, because the the Queen Mary currently is both a hotel and a museum, you know that uh, on one side of the dining room, it's all decked out with this peacetime opulence. I mean... You know, tables with fine linen and china and more forks than you've ever seen in your life. And on the other side of the partition, just the wartime essentials. Tin plates. Same ship, but a very different purpose. I mean, let's be honest. American culture is a serve-yourself society if there has ever been one. We are bombarded daily with all the things that we can have and do to to make our lives more fulfilled. That's what they tell us anyway, right? But does it really work? Or is it just chasing the wind? The goal of self-gratification, the idea of making yourself as comfortable as possible is, according to Jeremiah 2.13, a broken cistern. It's just a dry well in the end. And we can see the evidence all around us. I mean, you know, in this country, uh, as great as it is, we've you know, certainly risen above most of the, the plagues and difficulties and diseases in third world countries. You know, we've gotten rid of malnutrition and, and polio and cholera and typhoid and typhus and smallpox and things like that. And we've replaced them with hypertension, depression, divorce, STDs, addiction, suicide. Take your pick. 
and our prisons and divorce courts and mental institutions are overflowing. And in the process of saving ourselves, we risk losing it all. For what does it profit a man, Jesus said in Mark 8, 36, to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? You've heard this before, but there is a war going on. A war between truth and deception, and it has been waging throughout all of creation. And if we look around the world today, we can see that conflict playing out on the world stage like never before, at least in my lifetime. The contrast between a God of love and a spirit of hate. The contrast between life and death. Between humility and sacrifice and domination and oppression. And our commander-in-chief said in Matthew twenty twenty-eight, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. There is a war going on. And in a very real way, the New Testament is a call to arms. Ephesians 6.11 Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the evil one. 1 Peter 5.8 Be on the alert for your enemy, your adversary, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Sounds like conflict to me. Ephesians 6, 12, For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're in a war, whether we like it or not. And we need to be people who understand the times. Just in case you're wondering, I'm Steve Ellis. Uh, I'm not the pastor here. Um, you'll see conspicuously Mike's absent. He's, he's over at Bridges Church this morning uh, with his son Josh, where he is the youth pastor. And I'm not a pastor here. But uh, I had the privilege for a number of years of serving as one of your elders. And it's, it's always good to be with you. So I appreciate the opportunity to be with you this morning. And last week, we, we finished up our campaign on the topic of surrender, where we spent several weeks learning the importance of yielding different aspects of our life and relationships to the Lord and His purpose for us by looking at examples from the life of Jesus Christ. And, and just as a reminder, surrendering, that's not a one-time thing. The discipline of surrender is a daily challenge. Amen? Every morning, it's like, Lord, reporting for duty. What are my orders today? And now we are setting sail on a series entitled, 
All Hands on Deck, where we are going to be focusing on trying to find our place in the mission. Because there is a purpose for every single one of us in what God is up to. And just like the metaphor of the battleship, everyone needs to do their part. Someone's got to run the engines. Someone's got to man the guns. Someone's got to watch the radar screen. Somebody's got to steer. Someone's got to be on the bridge. Somebody's got to swab the deck. And it can't be the same person doing everything. God's mission is organic. And we are all a part of the body. So we're going to be looking in this series principally at the life and mission of the Apostle Paul. Maybe you've heard of him. Did a little preaching. Founded a a, a church or two. Wrote most of the New Testament. And our passage this morning is Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 31, which is the place where it all sort of starts for him. So if you've got your Bibles with you, turn to me to Acts chapter 9. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, the usher should be coming down the aisles. Just raise your hand. They'll put one in your hands. And it's a loner for the duration of the service. We just ask when you leave, just leave it on your chair and they'll pick it up. The verses are going to be up on the screen as we read, but it'll help if you have a a Bible in your hand to, to follow along. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Acts 9, verses 1 through 31. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about, as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? But rise. And he said, verse 5, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. 
the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight. He arose and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is is not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on the name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known. And they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But Saul's disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he, Christ, had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them moving freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord, and he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it continued to increase. There is a lot in that passage. A lot we could talk about this morning, obviously. Easily the most dramatic life change ever recorded in the scriptures. Saul of Tarsus, face down in the dust, confronted by the very one he was persecuting, going on to become the greatest apologist of all time. But the theme I was given for this morning is connected. Being connected. Getting connected in the the non-Facebook sense, okay? Being sensitive to how God wants to use us and how we can get involved in what He is doing. And as a part of that idea, I wanted to look at some of the not-so-obvious things in this passage, what we might consider some of the more minor players in this story, like the role of Ananias. Because for some of us, getting connected 
can sometimes feel a little uncomfortable. It gets us out of our box. We, we don't want to do it. We, we don't want something else on our plate. We're busy enough. We often are resistant to getting involved with other people. Ananias certainly didn't. Not with Paul. He was like, Lord, you, you know who this is, right? I mean, he's out to destroy us. He's either about killing us or putting us in prison or making us all refugees. Now, to be fair to Ananias, it, it took a lot of courage for him to do what God was asking. I mean, not exactly like joining a small group or teaching a Sunday school class. Saul was the enemy, a notorious one, which is why this conversion was such a seismic event for both sides. The Christians didn't believe it, and the Jewish leadership wanted him dead and tried to kill him multiple times. It was like, we, we can't have this guy going around saying these things about Jesus. There are some heartbreaking and horrific things happening to people in the Middle East right now, if you're in tune with the news. Christians, along with Iraqis, Kurds, and others, are being made homeless, being slaughtered, being persecuted, all in the name of religion. There are plenty of perpetrators, but the one who is maybe the poster child for this genocide is a Kuwaiti-born British citizen by the name of Mohammed Imwazi better known as Jihadi John. You may have seen pictures of him dressed in all in black. He's been featured in a number of videos executing hostages, including some Americans. If the back doors of this auditorium opened and somebody walked down the center aisle with their arm around Mohammed Mwazi, and walked him up to the stage, turned him around, and introduced him to all of you and said, This man has found the Lord. He has repented. He has heard the gospel. He has seen the Lord. And he is one of us. I'm guessing you'd all be a little bit skeptical. You'd probably want to see some evidence, serious evidence, some proof, a lot of it, for a while. That was people's reaction to the Apostle Paul. Because the things that are happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world right now is exactly what was happening to the first century church. People being martyred, made refugees, having their property confiscated, being forced to flee their homes. And Paul, well then Saul, was leading that charge in the name of the very God he thought he was serving. 
And the Christians in Jerusalem didn't want to have anything to do with him. Barnabas had to vouch for him, and even then, I'm sure he had plenty of doubters and detractors. But Barnabas made the effort, however long it took, to get him connected, to reach out to him. And that started a partnership between those two men that would lead to Paul's first missionary journey through Syria, Cyprus, and parts of Turkey. Ananias responded and took the risk to connect with someone he didn't want to. Someone he didn't know except by reputation, and that was not very good. Someone who clearly made him very uncomfortable. And in much the same way, God is prompting us to get out of our comfort zones and connect with people that make us feel a little uncomfortable. I don't need a show of hands, but, but how many of us, how many of us really know if all of the families on the block we live on have been exposed to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? where they've ever heard about the love of Christ, or have ever been invited to church, or even know what it means to believe, or how to respond in faith. We live in one of the most diverse communities in Southern California, and it's getting more diverse by the day, but when prompted to connect, more, more often than not, our, our initial reaction is, uh, yeah, I don't know, I'm busy. Or, or how many times have you known someone for months or maybe years, you've been in a relationship. And you, you talk and you wonder, and then, and then at some point along the way, something comes up and somebody says one of those buzzwords, something safe like blessing or, or faith. And you go, oh, are you a Christian? Oh, oh, me too. And yet you've known them for years. Why are we so timid? Our first thought, you know, when we're prompted to connect is is usually, how is this going to affect me? When it should be, Lord, what are you doing over there that you want me to be a part of? Because when God prompts us, he's already way, way, ahead of us. God was way ahead of Ananias. I mean, how many times have we not wanted to go somewhere or not wanted to do something or not wanted to get involved in in some situation or this ministry event, but we go reluctantly, begrudgingly, and God just blesses our socks off. Or we end up ministering to someone that was crying out to God and we didn't even know it. And we walk away thinking, oh man, that was a God moment. I I didn't see that coming. Of course we didn't. It's called walking by faith. And we need to stop overthinking and overanalyzing and rationalizing all the reasons why not. Because God is way, way, way ahead of us. At work all around us in ways we don't see. 
And we just need to get on board what he is doing. I played football in high school back in the day. No, we did not wear leather helmets. <laughs> Might as well have, though. I, you know, the teams I played on weren't very good. Uh, my sophomore season, we went 0-7-2. and Had two ties, 0-0. We didn't score a point. My senior season, we went 0 and 9. And I was I would sometimes say to the Lord, you know, can't we just win one game? Is is that too much to ask? You know, because high school football, that's that's a big deal, you know, Friday night lights and everything. Didn't happen. That's the first question I'm gonna ask the Lord when I get to heaven, you know. Would that have been so awful, you know, to just not really. It's not the first question. Maybe the second. But I was pretty involved in the youth group at the church at, my, at that time, and, and our church had a, a pretty strong presence at the high school. And so um, me and, and some of the other guys on the team, we started a Bible study for the football players on Tuesday nights at the home of Bob and Carol Cook, a couple of great servants of the Lord for years and years. And they had a house close to the high school, and um, we met every Tuesday night. And God really used that time. A couple of my ex-teammates are in the ministry, one's pastoring a church in Arizona. I know because Facebook helps me connect. And there was this one kid at school. I, actually, I, I, I call him a kid. He, he was a man among boys. You know, every high school has its alpha male, right? It's, it's big man on campus. And we certainly had ours. His name was Mike Fitch. And he was one intimidating dude. A rogue. I mean, this guy just, just oozed testosterone. I mean, even his name, Fitch, it sounds like trouble, doesn't it? I mean, he would come in on Mondays bragging about the guys he beat up over the weekend and the girls he'd been with and all the trouble he'd gotten into. And you believed him. He was the middle linebacker on the team a year ahead of me and he played with absolute reckless abandon. Led the team in tackles, led the team in everything. Just, just a maniac. Fitz was the kind of guy that when you were walking down the hall at school and you saw him coming the other way, you, you looked for a doorway to duck into. He was that kind of guy. And a couple of the guys in our Bible study said to me one day, why don't, why don't you invite Fitch to the Bible study Tuesday night? And my first thought was, why don't you invite Fitch? Because I'm thinking, you know, if there is one guy who is not coming to our Tuesday night Bible study, it is Mike Fitch. I'm thinking, you know, I'm not saying anything to him. That, that's not evangelism. That's a suicide mission. And I never got up the courage to ask. A couple of years later, I'm in college, still involved in the church, you know, leading the junior high department. And uh, one Sunday in between services, we had uh, worship services at 9 and 1030, just like we do here. It was a 
pretty big church. We had a, a very large foyer. So I'm, I'm coming down the hall around the corner into the foyer. And over in the corner, there's some commotion going on. There's a bunch of guys over there. And so I, I start wandering over there. And I see this people gathered around this guy who's you know kind of like head and shoulders above everybody else. And, and as I'm walking over to this group, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, that looks like Mike Fitch. And as I got closer, I could see, that, I, that's, that looks like Mike Fitch. And it did. I mean, he was all disheveled, as usual. I mean, Fitch always looked like he was coming off a three-day bender. Looked like him. But as I got close, it didn't sound like him. I mean, he was kind of quiet. Looking down, shuffling his feet. He almost sounded humble. And he's, he's telling the guys how he's turned his life over to Jesus Christ. How the Lord is changing him. And it's changed his heart. And, and, and he wants to know more about God. And I'm like... That's not the last time God spanked my faith. But it's the first time I really remember. Mike Fitch got his degree in physical education and went on to coach high school football. Talk about a man who lived his destiny. From 1985 to 87, he was an assistant coach at Brethren Christian High School, coached the offensive line. He became the head football coach at Whittier High School in 1987 and coached there for six years. In 1994, he took over the program at Mayfair High School and he coached the Mayfair Monsoons for 21 straight seasons. That's in Lakewood. He compiled a record of 230, 118, and 1, and his teams went to the postseason 19 times, including eight consecutive Suburban League titles and 54 consecutive league wins from 2001 to 2008. Three CIF Southern Section final appearances and two championships, 1998 and 2001. There's Coach Fitch. He was a little more svelte back in the day, you know. I mean, honestly, time takes a toll on us all. He retired in January of this year after 31 years. But an article in the L.A. Times in December of 2001 said this. The football program at Lakewood Mayfair High operates with military precision, commanded by Coach Mike Fitch, preaching discipline like a drill sergeant and allocating duties as if the captain of the ship. All hands on deck. His players are expected to show up, work hard, and perform as a unit, no matter who lines up next to them. Every player must participate in fundraising, submit progress reports once a week, get rid of accessories such as earrings and bandanas, and wear clothes that fit. They're not allowed to dress like hoodlums, Fitch said. I laughed out loud when I read that. I mean, the ultimate hoodlum says, no hoodlums on my team. If any man be in Christ, right? New creature. 
In his 31-year teaching and coaching career, Mike Fitch has influenced the lives of thousands of young and men and women for the cause of Jesus Christ, including young men like Alteron Werner, who played for Fitch at Mayfair High School in Lakewood and went on to play for UCLA, Go Bruins, was drafted in the fourth round by the Tennessee Titans and now plays cornerback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Mike Fitch has had a great impact for the gospel of Christ. And I didn't give him the time of day. Because I figured he was a lost cause. But God was way ahead of me. God was working on the heart of that renegade for years. And I had no idea. And God is at work in the lives of people around us. We don't see it, but it is happening. And he is just waiting for us to respond to the invitation and the opportunity connect. God is at work, and we won't see it unless we connect. You know, there is no such thing as a lost cause when the Word of God and the power of the Spirit is in play. I will say that again. There is no such thing as a lost cause when the Word of God and the power of His Spirit is at work. You know, I, I think God loves the outlaws for some reason. I mean, God loves everybody. But I, I think there's a special affinity in His heart for the outlaws. And I, I think maybe it's because they're willing to push boundaries. They're willing to go places most of the rest of us won't go. They're extreme worshipers. They're just worshiping the wrong things. And God's just got to get them turned. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul. 180 degrees. And he became the most dynamic force in the early church. And he never forgot where he came from, by the way. He wrote of himself, I am chief among sinners. I imagine there were moments when he was alone by himself, thinking back on the things that he had done to God's people before God had got a hold of his heart and he had regret. Even though he knew he was forgiven. Jesus said, he who is forgiven much loves much. And Paul declared himself to be a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ out of love for the one who had forgiven him everything. So if you've got an outlaw on your hands, don't lose heart. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, you've got a renegade. We can't be overbearing. We, we, we can never argue anyone into the kingdom. It's a work of the Spirit, and we've got to give God room, but we just need to let the Word of God do its work on their heart. Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine. the Lord says, Is not my word a fire? Is not my word like a hammer? 
that breaks the rock in pieces. It is the Word of God and the Word of God alone, people, illuminated by the Holy Spirit that breaks down a man's defenses and changes his heart. And that has not changed. Culture changes. Trends change. But the essence of the spirit of man, what he is, dead in his sins, and what he needs to be forgiven and drawn into fellowship with the living God through the truth of the word, that hasn't changed either. But how will they hear unless someone tells them? We just got to keep swinging the hammer. Keep connecting in love. How many of you have heard the story of Edward Kimball? Anybody? You probably have. When I get into it, you probably remember it. But Edward Kimball was a volunteer Sunday school teacher in Boston, Massachusetts in the mid-1800s. He had a class of young boys, and God had just gave him a burden for them. So he tried to interact with them outside of the Sunday school classroom. And, and meet each one of them. One of his students worked at a local shoe store, so on April 21st of 1855, Kimball visited him in town and found him working in the back stocking shelves and challenged that young man with the love of Jesus Christ and challenged him to surrender his heart to the Lord. Kimball would later say about that day that he really didn't want to go because, you know, he didn't want to embarrass the boy, but something compelled him. And Kimball said, my plea was a weak one, <laughs> but I was sincere. That young Sunday school student was Dwight L. Moody, and he left that shoe store to become one of the most prolific evangelists of all time. Founded the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Now we could stop right there. But Moody, whose speaking schedule went international, eventually travels to England, and there he inspires a young man by the name of Frederick Brotherton Meyer with that story about a volunteer Sunday school teacher who personally went to every student in his class to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. And Meyer decides to become an evangelist like Moody. Meyer comes to America, and while speaking in Northfield, Massachusetts, a part-time pastor hears Meyer say, if you are not willing to give up everything for Christ, are you at least willing to be made willing? That remark led J. Wilbur Chapman to go into the ministry. And in, 19, in, in 1893, a former professional baseball player turned volunteer for Christ by the name of Billy Sunday becomes Chapman's apprentice and eventually takes over Chapman's ministry when he goes back to becoming a local pastor. And inspired at a Billy Sunday crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1924, a group of men form what would later become part of CBMC, the Christian Businessmen's Committee. And ten years later, that group invites the evangelist Mordecai Ham to come and hold a series of meetings in Charlotte. And in 1934, a lanky and reluctant 15-year-old sits in the crowd one evening, spellbound. 
And he responds to the message of the love of Christ. That teenager was William Franklin Graham Jr., better known as Billy Graham. Maybe you've heard of him. Billy Graham has communicated the gospel in 185 countries to more people than any other person in history. Estimates of the number who have heard him preach either in person, on radio, or TV range in the neighborhood of 2.2 billion, including me, including Louis Zamperini, whose life was just made a motion, major motion picture, and maybe some of you. And it all started with a volunteer Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball and his willingness to go into that shoe store that day in 1985 and overcome his reluctance and connect with that young Sunday school student. God was way, way, way ahead of Edward Kimball. I don't know if the next Dwight L. Moody or the next Billy Graham is in our four-year-old's department down the hall. But I look out over this auditorium and I, I see a lot of Edward Kimballs. I see some Mike Fitches. Ordinary people that God can use in absolutely extraordinary ways. I know we're busy. I, I know our lives are already full. I know we feel stretched out under the pressure. But truthfully, it's, it's not up to us anyway. You know, Jesus in John chapter 5 said several times, I can do nothing apart from the Father. I do nothing of my own initiative, only what I see the Father doing. If that was true for him, how much more is it true for us? And indeed, Jesus said in John fifteen five, when he was talking to his disciples about the, the, their need to connect to him and to abide in him like branches in a tree, said in John fifteen five, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. No thing. Whether we realize it or not, we are spiritual quadriplegics without being connected and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, which only comes through surrendering our lives and our egos and our dreams to the love of Jesus Christ. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Surrendering isn't easy, I know. And connecting with unfamiliar people sometimes feels a little bit scary. But, but let me leave you with the words of Frederick Brotherton Meyer and what he said to J. Wilbur Chapman. If you are not willing to surrender everything to Christ, are you at least willing to be made willing? Let's start there and see what God does. Pray with me. Lord God, make us willing to be willing. Lord, I know that your 
the hammer of your word, the fire of your word, sometimes takes time to get through the hardness of hearts, even mine. Lord, make, make me willing to be willing. Lord, give me a heart for the lost. Help me see this world the way that you do. Help me know how to be that cup of cold water. Help me understand that I can do nothing save through your power and through your spirit. And Lord, give me the discipline of surrendering every day to you so that I might go and interact and connect with people not in my own strength, but in yours, with your love, with your wisdom, with your passion. Lord, do that for us. Help us make a difference in this community of Cyprus and the surrounding cities. Lord, we know you love, you love these communities. Your heart breaks for the lost. Lord, give us that burden and prompt us with the opportunities and may we be obedient when you speak. In your name we pray. Amen.